0: Our new testament sermon texas evening is from ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23 ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23 this is god's holy word please give careful attention to the reading of it ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23 for this reason because i have heard of your faith in the lord jesus and your love toward all the saints i do not cease to give thanks for you according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Well, in a famous television blooper, a newscaster clearly trying to relate to the youngsters closed her segment by asking the audience with a big smile, who's your favorite superhero? Mine's Superman, she says. Remember the famous quote, With great power comes great responsibility. This, in fact, is a well-known Spider-Man quote, but it's easy to have sympathy with this reporter. After all, superhero movies now dominate the silver screen to the point where superhero fatigue is a term people are throwing around now. But in a day and age where charity and debate and good communication skills have faded, And where opinions on politics and religion are highly polarized, it's no wonder that preoccupation with power and a desire even for superpower is in the cultural air. When reason and empathy and patience and understanding are failing hallmarks of society, the desire to be persuasive and whimsical and reasonable and evangelical can feel pointless And the temptation arises to impose your views by force. Fear of the powerful who are against you may grow. And hope in a just and iron-fisted hero can grow alongside fear. Well, this evening, Paul will pick up his thought from the previous passage of God's loving adoption and purposes in Christ that had been bestowed and sealed upon us In a wise and insightful manner, built on the unfolding mystery of redemptive history. Paul will pick this thought up and add a crucial element necessary to our hope the superabundant power of God to make all his plans come to pass. He begins in verse 15 and 16 For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering, or more literally making mention of, you and my prayers. Here, Paul is responding to an encouraging report he received on the status of the Ephesian saints, a report he likely requested since they have been on his heart since, uh, while he's been apart from them in prison. And he responds by telling them, as he often does, about how he's been praying specifically for their church. In his prayer life, Paul tends to favor specific prayers rather than a generic approach. And so it's a distinct and common idiom for Paul to say that he has been making mention of his audience in prayer. He tells the church in Rome that he prays for them without ceasing. He tells the church in Philippi that he mentions them always in every prayer of his with joy. He constantly prays in thankfulness for the Thessalonians. Timothy is prayed for night and day. And the love and the faith that Philemon has toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints is also never skipped in Paul's prayers. Verse 17, and through the rest of our passage tonight, will be a report from Paul on the specific ways that he prays for the Ephesians. To begin with, he's been praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give them something. Now this term, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is one which Paul used back in verse 3, and which other biblical, scholars also, uh, biblical writers also use, and it's meant to express the genuine humanity of Christ by, by speaking of God the Father as his God. Jesus speaks of himself in this way too in John 20 when he says after the re- his resurrection, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. The humanity of the Son is emphasized here for a couple of reasons. Firstly, and most importantly, is that it expresses the exclusive human mediation of Christ as the only way to the Father. There is no other. As Jesus says in John 14, I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. This means that as the one mediator between God and men of the new covenant God is no longer known as the God of Israel or the God of Abraham but as the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second reason his humanity is stressed is because of the Hellenist climate that they're writing in. Ancient Greek gods were thought to appear on earth looking human, but in those cases, the gods always wore a human guise, like a Halloween costume. It wasn't a true humanity like Paul stresses. So, what does Paul want the glorious father of the true man and true God? Son to Grant. He wants the Father to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, so that verse 18, they may have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which he has called them, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this spirit here is clearly connected to the eyes of their hearts, so A human spirit is in mind here, that seat of inner life, which enables perception and discernment. But the Holy Spirit working in the human spirit is clearly also going on, and both can be true at once. Especially since in the last section, Paul was talking about grace bestowed both through the wisdom and insightfulness of God's plans, but also through our being made wise and insightful in receiving Christ, and understanding more and more of how all things are summed up in him. So wisdom and insight is received in a wise and insightful way because it's given from the one who is wise and insightful. The Holy Spirit has wisdom from above and enables believers, spirits to have true wisdom and insight in the eyes of their hearts. Now, some of the impact of Paul's heartlight phrase is diminished because not everyone remembers Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and the banger Neil Diamond soundtrack that accompanied it. Turn on your heart light. And Paul is obviously referencing that soundtrack uh, to drive his point here, home. The love which the father adopted us by and the love by which the son gave his life for together with the wisdom and insight of God's unfolding plan to sum up redemption in Christ, and together with the hope of the of the Spirit as our guarantee, ought to glow in the hearts of the saints and cut through the darkness of the world, just like the heart of the extraterrestrial. Paul here is does actually have another reason uh, for the to impact this. Excuse me. There is another reason why this heart light is also dampened in our modern world. And this is a real reason this time. At Paul's time, deep darkness was the norm at night. And while it's true that first century Ephesians would not have had a chance to watch E.T., they would have a plethora of scripture references to this theme of darkness that Paul is referring to. At first, creation began with God separating light from darkness— and new creation begins in our hearts in the same way. Matthew tapped into this powerful scheme when he quotes Isaiah 9 concerning the Son's incarnation. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Luke in Acts 26 speaks of those who have their eyes opened so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. And Paul says plainly in 2 Corinthians 4 For, God, for the same God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of verse 18 through 19 are just cool. Paul uses a kind of crescendo technique here where he makes three parallel statements that grow in length and magnitude and meaning to a climax. And Paul uses this technique to emphasize for his audience the main idea that he wants us to understand in this whole section. Paul wants the eyes of their hearts to be open so that we may know, one, what is the hope to which he has called us? Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might? Everything Paul has been talking about so far might be summed up as the hope to which he has called us. And thus far, the aspect of that hope Paul has focused on has been the richness and the magnitude and the worth and the plethora of our inheritance in Christ. But the cherry on top of this lavish hope is that it's not like the hope that is spoken of, like something that we, like people often say when they're talking about hope. Because people talk about hope like they might say, I hope she'll marry me, or I hope she'll I'll get that job. Or I hope a 4K anniversary edition of ET will be released. But there's always a certain excitement and stress associated with the possibility that such hopes may not come to pass. Paul says, the best thing about hope is the immeasurable greatness of God's power to mightily make all of it come to pass for those who believe. Our Lord has indeed brought our redemption and adoption to fruition, and he cannot fail to do the same with the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. God is not like us in setting goals. The wisdom of some self-help books is fine for us. Setting attainable goals that we're likely to accomplish and committing to accountability makes sense for finite creatures. But for God, his mere will to do something is a guarantee that it will come to pass. He does all of his holy will in our redemption through the immeasurable, or as sometimes people translate it, the superabundant magnitude of his power. Verse 20, this power that he worked or that he affected in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well here, Paul will begin to speak against the preoccupation that those of his day would often have with supernatural forces and powers which they would try to and seek to manipulate through magic and the occult. Often before having their heartlight ignited for Jesus by the Spirit, Ephesian converts would have spent their entire lives trying to placate unseen hostile powers. And these Beliefs and patterns would likely have been not super easy to shake. Paul, therefore, goes on in verse 21 to contrast the weakness of such real or imagined forces with Jesus, who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The concepts and synonyms here are piled up for authorities, that the Father has given to the Son here. And of particular importance is the idea that Jesus is above every name that is named. With the preoccupation that Paul's audience had with the manipulation of the unseen, they would have been keenly interested in the occult practice of acquiring and using spirit or demon names, which they thought would give them control over them. Romans, for example, would keep the names of some of their gods secret so that their enemies couldn't gain power over their city by speaking their false god's names. Jesus, though, is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And verse 22 begins by pointing out that the Father put all things under Jesus' feet. Now this comes from Psalm 86 and is actually the first direct quotation of the Old Testament in Ephesians. But since Paul has already stressed the exaltation of Christ in the last couple of verses, why does he bring it up now? Well, the idea in Psalm 86 is that mankind was made to have dominion over the creature, over the creation. Christ, therefore, is linked to Adam as the second Adam, but also all of mankind in covenant with Christ is linked with his exaltation. So, this leads into the rest of verse 22 and 23, the, the last verse of this section. The Father also gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is sovereign over all things, but while his authority over his enemies is as one who has his foot on their necks, this is not the way. He exercises his superabundant power over the church. We are as one flesh with him, he being the head and we being the body. This is similar to the way that Adam described Eve, as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Paul's audience would have also been reminded by this head and body analogy of the relationship of the state to its citizens. And so, thinking about it this way, with Christ as the supreme ruler over the new creation and all things subjected to him as the head of the church, we are like ambassadors of the inaugurated new creation. If we're going to be ambassadors then, may we be good ambassadors. Taking cues from Paul in this passage, may we pray for one another and encourage one another to a deeper understanding of God, God, and his redemptive gifts to us and the super abundant power that the father exercises through Christ on behalf of his people. And may our heart light burn bright in an ever deepening understanding of the gospel an understanding of the grace that has been lavished upon us through the father and son and the Holy Spirit and all to the glory of God. Amen.